it's such a pleasure uh, to be back again as part of our Voices Dialogue series. Uh, we've had a bit of a hiatus, uh, I think over close to a year in our public facing recording. Uh, season four, I think, was one of our most uh, tumultuous and sensitive when we walked into the areas of mental health and adolescence. But the outcomes and the reception behind that really gave us so much of inspiration that this is an area and a perspective that we must continue delving into. Today, we're actually going to be launching season five and uh, with no less uh, uh, topics that are fraught with complexity, uh, misunderstandings, misconceptions, stigmas, and unfortunately, a lot of avoidance strategies in policymaking. And it's not really got a name yet, but broadly as an outline, we're looking at aspects of prison reform, uh, what's the slippery slope in terms of communities that actually uh, face more stigma or perhaps more chances of having incarceration and uh, personal stories, uh, policy stories. We're going to have some really amazing guests. And uh, I'm hoping that this is really going to be uh, one that brings people to a great amount of understanding awareness. So just for everyone's reminder, I'm Rohit Segal, I'm the Chief Strategist and Editor with the Voices Project here in Asia and Singapore. And uh, we're just a quick summary. We're a group of like-minded health editors, researchers, technical advisors, writers, who've spent a career in trying to track the evolution of healthcare in parts of the developing world. I hate the word global south, but at the same time, it's where uh, a lot of these conversations tend to need to rather take place. Um, so TVP's ultimate objective is to let voices be heard wherever they come from. Uh, let them be amplified with a view to identifying, promoting public health priorities, community priorities, societal priorities. And by empowering these voices, bringing together multilateral perspectives, what we seek is to expand a collective understanding of how public healthcare issues can actually begin to unify and create some consensus uh, within the uh, uh, geography that anyone is in, and our listeners too. It doesn't matter which part of the world you're listening or tuning in from. The intent is to try to come out really with the level of passion and understanding for improving public health issues that are facing our world today. What's very gratifying as well is that we're a, a technical collaborator and advisor with the World Health Organization for Western Pacific Region. We're also now partners with the Sabin Vaccine Institute, working towards inequitable, well, the current inequitable access of HPV and cervical cancer awareness and protection, and many other aspects that are driving us towards 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. So that's, I guess, a very uh, quick roundup or an introduction um, to kick our season off with this first episode. Today, it's an absolute honor and a real privilege to be uh, with uh, Holly Dean Johns. Um, we're gonna reflect on uh, the aspects of prison reform, but we're going to hear from somebody who has an amazing story to tell and has written a book as well, which uh, will be actually there as a link below what you'll be able to find. And I would love, I typically introduce uh, my guests, but I think today, I'll let Holly uh, give her introduction and we'll get into a very riveting conversation, which I'm sure we will be. So Holly, an introduction for yourself, please. Okay, so my name's Holly and I have written a book about my life. 
So it starts off from my childhood, through my teens into adulthood. Um, starts off as a very typical kid living in suburbia. Um, very typical family life until my parents separate when I was 12. My mother then started seeing a man who was a heroin addict. We had no idea he was. We didn't even know anybody who was involved in drugs. This was a totally new thing for us. So a few months into the relationship, my mother also started using heroin. And subsequently, every one of us kids started using heroin. There's five of us. So we all became heroin addicts and we all went to prison because of our addictions. I didn't only end up in prison in Australia. I ended up in prison in Thailand for seven and a half years and was then transferred back to Australia on a transfer treaty where I served another five years before getting released out onto parole for a further five years. So my book, as I said, is about my life, but it's also about me deciding one day that I didn't want to use drugs anymore. It had totally ruined my life. It had ruined my mother's life. She had overdosed and died when I was 21. Um, so I made a, a decision while I was in jail in Thailand to stop using and I never looked back. So once I got back to Australia, I wanted to study. I knew that when I got out, I wanted to help people who had addictions, mental health issues. Um, you know, I've been around it all. I've, I've lived that life. So I know that I've got a lot of experience that I can share with people to let them know that if you're in an addiction right now or whatever horrible thing you're going through, there is a way out. I think a lot of people when they're in that situation think, there's just no way that anything can change, but it can. And I'm living proof of that. So I just want to get that story out to people. I want to inspire people to do what I've done. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Holly. Um, your life reads almost much as your book has been able to break down your life in chapters. Nobody wakes up or is born thinking, I'm going to live my life in chapters. But in a way, you have such a journey that almost almost reads almost in a narrative form and I think a great place to start having explained your entire life outlook and the inspiration with which you've now looked back and looking forward to supporting others is let's talk about where this began you you, you reflected on your family you reflected life in Melbourne the events leading up to around the time when um, the initial time in prison at Bandia prison was that right in in Western Australia um, and how that wasn't even before you'd hit the age of 20 or thereabouts now that's really an in, I suppose yes. a place to start um, and there's many things in your book that you might you know would love to read for our listeners but why do we start there Holly okay so um, I first used heroin when I was 15 um, became addicted to it I ended up getting arrested on drugs charges, which I was served, uh, which I was sentenced to serve five years 
So I went in at 20, got in at, got out at 25, um, began using again. Ended up going over to Thailand where my then boyfriend was. Lived there for three years. I was still using drugs. Um, I would come back to Australia though sometimes to visit my family and my friends. So one night I went to the post office to send back to myself 15 grams of heroin in a calendar so that when I went home, I would have heroin so I wouldn't be sick. Well, I went to post one of these one night and was arrested. I'd been under surveillance for three months. And those, and that, and that in a way was the first experience of, of, of seeing how, let's say the, the world of prison incarceration uh, was like, and we'll come back to that because when you reflect on, let's say Australia's approach to um, how uh, uh, sentencing or let's say the time that's you know being able to be made within uh, the confines of prison versus what we'll now probably come into which is in Thailand you know um, must be very sort of like almost you could compare between what you experienced what you learned a question I know many of our listeners would be thinking is do, do you think at that age that sort of level of incarceration was was helpful? I mean, did it actually dissuade you? Did it, or, 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 or do you think that it was almost like a, a learning curve on how things could actually get worse as, as, as they did actually later on? Um, that's a hard question to answer actually. Um, look, the, the one good thing about about prisons in, in Australia, for example, is there's a lot of opportunities that are available to people. Um, and I mean that in the terms of study. When you're locked up in, in Australia, you can actually do things to better yourself so that when you are released, you have gained some knowledge to be able to use that when you get out. And that's what I did when I went to prison. I'd left school after year 10 hoping to go into hairdressing. Um, so when I went to jail, I thought, well, what, what can I do to better myself? So I did my year 11, I did year 12. So now I have officially finished high school. Um, but yeah, look, for, for me, five years was a long time and I got out and I just started using again. It, what, yeah, it's um, it wasn't something that was very important to me at that time to stop. Jail hadn't been a big enough of a shock for me, I think is fair to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, let's let's talk about then your experiences in Thailand. So you you reach Thailand, you're 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 living there, you're you're spending time there, things go awfully wrong. And your second, in a way, chapter of life starts and what's referred to as the Bangkok Hilton, which is a very macabre way of referring to one of the most hardest prisons uh, to be in, in probably in Asia, if not in the world. Um, how did that happen? And, 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 how, and, and what was your most, I think, yeah, experiences over there? Um... Nothing could have prepared me 
for exactly what it was like. Like you, you hear stories about, you know, the prisons in Thailand or Asia. You hear all the stories. Um, but to be honest, I honestly thought that a lot of stories I'd heard were just stories that had been severely exaggerated. Never in my wildest dreams could I even imagine that what it was like was true. It, yeah, you just can't get your head around it until you actually walk through those gates and you walk into this world. It's absolutely mind-blowing. It's inconceivable. Yeah, it, yeah, mind-blowing. Just like nothing I've ever seen before or believed could happen. Three and a half years in a, in a place like that, which for somebody who'd already been within, as you said, previous to that in Australia, it sort of was, you know, it, it wasn't, it didn't phase you. Then comes this experience in Thailand. How did you cope with the first initial, let's say few months, years? I mean, you've, you, you made it through three and a half, four years, but what, what, what was that like? I mean, how, how would you describe your sense there? And I know when we spoke the last time, I think if I'm not mistaken, you said that foreigners weren't given any real access to productive time. So education, learning skills, other things like that. How was that like? So for the, um, for the Thai women that were in there, they could study. They had a school set up in there um, for them. We weren't allowed to study anything, which was a real shame because when you're in a Thai prison, you aren't just there for a few weeks or a few months. You're there for years, 10 years plus. Um, you don't really hear of people having a sentence of less than 10 years or really even 20 years. You are there for, for a long, long time. And to not be able to have access to study, that was, that was horrible for us because we're just sitting here doing nothing. We're not gaining anything from being here. We're not able to work on ourselves to become better people or more educated people. So what, what are people meant to do when they're released back into society? What, what skills have they got? What have they learned? Nothing. That, that's the pity about it. And you're, 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 you're still uh, addicted to, to, to various uh, substances and you're in prison still going through that. How does that work? So you've, the de-addiction process, is that something that's just literally, you just left to yourself and you figure it out or were there support measures or were the, and we'll come to that, I think you're, the relationships that were formed, the um, almost the compassion and love that, 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 you, that you also discovered in there. Um, but how was the, how, how did the addiction or the de-addiction process begin? Um, so, sorry, uh, can you repeat that again? You broke up a little bit. I didn't get the full question. So I was just sort of putting into context that you went into the Thai prison still addicted to uh, drugs, to substance abuse. You've been sentenced and put into prison in Thailand 
for somebody who's addicted to certain drugs, how does that work in terms of de-addiction programs, if there were any? Was it around more community and self-help with various other uh, prisoners there? How was that as a experience yeah. and what took you down towards the de-addiction uh, route? So when I was arrested, um, I was kept in the police lockup for one month. So obviously I've got no drugs. So I know that I'm going to be very sick. So my friend who was also arrested with me um, mentioned to the Thai police that we needed to either have a doctor sent in to see us or take us out to a hospital because we need medication. We're going to be very, very sick. Um, they didn't care. They said, well, if you want to use drugs, you're going to be sick. That was it. So when our embassies came to see us, we mentioned that we needed help. They got a doctor to write medication for us, um, which the police at the lockup had to give us. So if it wasn't for the Australian embassy, we would have had nothing. Well, wow. wow. so just so just basically you're here, it's your fault. Yeah. You put it up. It's your it's your life. Whether yeah. you get sick, whether you die, whether you're, you know, however, whatever you do, it's it's on you, literally, just like that. And that's and that's and, and we're talking of a sizable population, I'd say, right? I mean, within the women's prison, you'd say that were there a lot of, let's say, folks like that who are coming in with addiction issues? No. Yeah, okay. No. And that's what was really, well, it was sort of surprising in a way. When, when I first got there, um, I was so horrified and I just couldn't believe how people were living. Um, I knew at that stage that I was going to be in this prison for a long, long time. Um, and to be quite honest, all I wanted to do was be stoned. I just wanted to numb myself. Um, so I found out who sold heroin in the prison. I was buying from her. I was then also buying uh, medication from an American woman who was due to be transferred home. So I was buying her medication. So I did this for about 10 months and then literally woke up one morning, was looking around where I was and I just said to myself, then and there, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm never going to use drugs ever again. Look at what I've done to my life. Look at where I am. Look what's happened to my mum. Look what's happened to my brothers and sisters. So that for me, it, it was a massive wake up call. And from that day until now, I've never looked back. Yeah. You, you, you did other things as well during your prison time, if I'm not mistaken. You had um, a language learning journey. You formed friendships. You had an emotional toll of losing fellow inmates. Would you, would, you, would you want to talk a bit about that, particularly around the aspects of the friendships that were formed, the camaraderie, and the language learning actually is, is interesting, if that's something you want to reflect on as well. Not being able to understand what was going on, what was going on around me was, it was horrible. 
to not understand anything that's being talked about. Um, yeah, it's it was horrible. Not being able to communicate by myself, always having to ask somebody, oh, can you translate for me? That was really hard for me because I'm a very independent person. I don't like to rely on other people. Um, so after about those 10 months, I thought, you know what? I'm going to be here for a very long time. I'm going to have to learn how to communicate. So I started reading books. Um, I learned a lot just from listening to them talk. Um, I'd pick out certain words and ask what that meant. So it did take me a very long time to learn the language, um, but it was very beneficial to be able to communicate myself. And, and, and once you've learned a language, you're learning culture, you're learning um, how people are thinking and why their behaviors are in a certain way. Did you make, um, did you make friends? Did you make uh, connections that way that were, uh, that were, that were helpful and, and also supported you in that, in that environment? Look, well, when you're in a prison like that, you, every day, is about surviving. So in order to make your life the best it can be, having friendships with people, that was, that was huge because you help each other. Life's hard enough. So if anyone can help somebody, that's what you do because you understand the struggle. You understand how hard it is. So yeah, um, when, you're with, when you're with people 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you, you become more than friends, you become family, you, you really do. And it's not just going to be a little while that you're together with these people, it's years, it's a long time. So yeah, you do become close with people, for sure. And you've, so, so, so basically you straddled a portion of being in prison in Thailand, you finished up the sentence back in Australia, how did that feel? Did you feel, um, even going back to prison in Australia, that oh, this is going to be sort of like a way to just settle back in? And how was that like? So you go from one into another, but the comparisons, was it very stark? Oh. Was very different? Oh, look, day and night, <laughs> from bad to good. Um, oh, look, it... I can't remember the last time when I felt that happy getting off the plane back in Australia. Um, even when I was told I was going home, I didn't fully believe it because I knew that anything can happen in Thailand. You can be told yes today and be told no tomorrow. So I didn't actually, actually believe 100% that I was going until I actually got on that plane. Yeah. And I've so, seen decisions reversed too many times. Yeah. So you, you really can't even believe it. That is this for real? Is this really for real? Till literally you're on the plane, till you're literally out of airspace and finally in Australian airspace. Okay, this is real. And then you touch down after, well, what are we saying? So you reach back in Australia after close to four years or so, more, a little more than four years? No, I was in Thailand prison for seven and a half years. Seven and a half years, of course. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Don't forget those three and a half years. 
no no exactly right so yeah because you know you you compartmentalize three three and so on but no this this was seven and a half years yeah. um you then finish up the sentence in australia which is another four four years or thereabouts five five years five. so we're talking 12 years to really little over 12 years that you've spent life in your most formative of years in a part of the world, in a in a space that you could never even have imagined. And you're now looking at the post-prison outcomes. So here you are, it's day zero, where they finally said, off you go, Holly, you're, you're free. And you think, that's great. I'm going to get along beautifully. But then come along, I think, as you've outlined in your book as well, the emotional challenges post-release. It's, it's a... It's a bit of a post-traumatic stress disorder aspect, a PTSD feeling, I'm sure, which can be almost overwhelming and almost indescribable. Talk about that and what that was like, your first foot into freedom and your feeling, is this, what am I gonna do with myself? No, um, I was very fortunate in the fact that I walked out of prison and pretty much just walked straight back into life like I'd never been away. Uh, a lot of people couldn't believe that. And to be honest, I couldn't either. I thought it was going to feel very challenging because it's a long time to be out of society. But no, I, honestly, I just fitted straight back into life, thankfully. Um, yeah, I, I was very lucky. And I think it made it more easy for me because I had a lot of support. I had really good family and friends around me. So that made a huge difference as well. I, I know it did. Um, I know a lot of people get out and they've got nobody. Um, that's a real situation for a lot of people, which is really sad. So for a lot of people going back to prison, it's sort of not surprising when you've got nothing on the outside to look forward to or anybody that loves you or cares about you. That, that's a huge thing as well. Um, yeah, I, I got out and just got back into my life. Um, it was probably about maybe two years later, I started to wake up in the morning crying my eyes out. I didn't want to leave my house. Um, I didn't want to talk to anybody. If I, if I did go out, I'd be driving in my car and I'd just start bawling my eyes out. I had no idea what was wrong, wrong with me. I didn't tell anyone what was happening. Um, my boyfriend at the time, Stephen, he knew something was wrong, but he didn't know what. Um, after this going on for a few weeks, I, I was, I thought I was losing my mind. I thought I was going crazy. And I thought, oh, I've, I better go and see a doctor because this is not right. I can't keep doing this every day. So I went and saw my doctor who had been my doctor since a baby. So he knew me, he knew of my life. I explained everything to him and he said, you've got depression and post-traumatic stress. And as soon as he said that to me, it clicked. Yeah, right, okay, that makes sense. But I had never even considered that. It didn't even occur to me that I could have anything like that. But as soon as he said those words, I was like, oh, okay, it all makes sense now. Mm -hmm. So from that, um, he put me on medication 
which was making me sick. He had to change it to a different medication, um, which I was on for a long time and then came to a point in my life where I thought, I'm okay now, I don't need it. I went to the doctor and said, look, I'm all right, I want to get off this. How do you want me to do it? And he said, I don't recommend that you do. And I said, well, I'm going to, so tell me the best way to do it. And he said, okay, no worries. He says, but if you do feel like you need to be back on it, just come and see me. And that's what happened. I ended up going back to seeing to see him and said, no, you're right, I do need to be on it. So I'm still on it today. I will probably be on it till the day I die, but that's fine for me. It, it's helped me. And I did an enormous amount of counselling as well. Um, yeah, I had to do quite a lot of work on myself to be able to get to the stage where I felt I was okay. And I felt I couldn't, could now get on with life. Did, did you, I mean, just a question, I think, because there's always comparisons on this feeling of, uh, as you went through this emotional, you know, uh, roller coaster, but much delayed time and, uh, you know, places in, in, in Asia don't necessarily have a support mechanism or a social security to say, you know, if you don't have family, if you don't have friends, if you don't have anyone, you still have something to fall back on. And that is some sort of a uh, institutionalized government support system or NGOs that actually come into play. Was that something that at all came in, in, in your ability to get counseling, to have access to counseling? Or, or was this something that you discovered and moved on your own? No, I, I did all that myself. You did yourself, right. Okay. Yeah. 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 That, that's... I, I, knew, I knew everything like that was available. I knew I just had to reach out and, and take it. Yeah, that's yeah. It's it's interesting, and we'll sort of reflect on this in the subsequent episodes. Because how do you come to terms with some with with the situation that you would that you found yourself in in terms of coming out after all that time, the 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 sort of emotions that are almost like a bit of a delayed factor. They it's almost like the sonic boom effect. Like you you see the light, but the boom comes. You know, a few minutes later. How do you sort of prepare? communities trying to sort of come back in rehabilitation and it's it's again as you're saying it comes from within there's a sense and obviously having the right support is 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 imperative um you talked a bit about the medication that's actually really quite interesting because there's a, a very high degree of medication uh, within certain prison systems and then upon release a lot of those access isn't so easy anymore um, and there's also having to be on a public registry and so on but then you sort of went and you, as you said, you came into this acceptance that I accept what I have, you accept your treatment and you're saying you'll take that right through up to the end. And that's a really important fact because many people don't look at it that way. Many people resist the treatment. And would you say that that actually is detrimental to the healing process, to the, to the rehabilitation and just basically getting on with life? I, I think it is because if you're not if you're not doing something to change what's happening to you, well, you're sort of not making any steps forward. You're making yourself stuck. Do, does that make sense? It's like you're taking backward steps. 
you know, and for me, I wasn't going backwards. I, the only way I was going was forward. And I knew I needed counselling. I knew that. I knew it would help me. I knew I needed the medication. I knew that would help me. So the things that I accepted and then did, that's what got me through. That's what made me the person I am today. That helped me. If I didn't do those things, I don't think I'd be at this point today. Yeah. And it's a segue actually to, I think, a really, really critical part of our discussion and why I was so keen to speak with you. And that is your advocacy and the advocacy that's obviously come out of your experiences, but also just a sense of resolve and your future initiatives. So let me let me sort of start it at some point here. And let's see, maybe this is a good place to start. So you had a desire to go back to Thailand after release and try to look at how do you go back and understand or go back to ground zero in a way, sort of see where it began. But at the same time, what really was something that you could offer or give back? And you had some experiences, didn't you? You had some both positive. Yeah. Well, please talk. I mean, it'll be because I mean, that is a critical part of your going back to your to your to your to your wound in a way, but finding a way through that, you know. So when I got out of um, jail in Australia, the people I'd been in in the Thailand prison with, they were still there. I was lucky enough not to be. And because I knew what they were going through every day, all I wanted to do was go back and visit them. I wanted to buy them food. I wanted to put some money onto their prison accounts. Um, I just wanted to go there and visit them because I know what what's happening to them in there. And I know that just having a friendly face turn up and, you know, just have a normal conversation for a while. I know how much that means to somebody. I've, I've been that somebody. So that's all I wanted to do. That was my goal for, for wanting to go there. Nobody could give me an answer. Um, I tried asking lawyers. I tried asking people at the embassy. No one could tell me whether I could go back or not. So I thought one day, well, no one can tell me. So the only way I'm going to find out is to go there. Um, and that's what I did. I went there knowing that once I got off the plane, I would either be allowed to enter or I wouldn't. But that was the only way of knowing. So I got up to the immigration desk, handed my passport over and, yeah, what are you doing here? <laughs> oh. So, yeah. So I was taken up to the immigration cells. Luckily, there was a midnight flight back to Australia and they put me on that. So that's how I found out I wasn't allowed back. So, so Which is a very extreme thing to have to do. <laughs> so, so you never had that opportunity to really go back in and sort of speak face to face with some of the people that you'd known, you met? That, that just was, they oh. just didn't let you do that. That's insane. That's just, you know. And you um, treated that not to say, well, that's it. I can't do anything. No, what you did is you reached advocacy and a sense of professional growth in yourself. You got into social work, counseling. And let's talk a bit about hypnotherapy because that's actually something that doesn't get talked about enough and always seen as a bit of a pseudoscience. But I think in this context, it would be really interesting to hear your perspectives 
I think in that, if you could also contextualize what you also saw, because there are some very hard truths here, aren't there? I mean, we're talking about not just substance abuse, but related mental health and domestic violence, sexual abuse and all of that. So you're you're looking at social work and counseling and hypnotherapy. How do you see that fitting together? Talk about the hypnotherapy part, only because that just sounds awfully fascinating. But yeah, it would be good to hear that. Um, hypnotherapy has been in my family for, well, back in the day. My father was a hypnotherapist, his brother and his sister. Um, so I had known about it, but it had never really interested me too much until one day it did. I thought, you know what? I'm interested in this now. I think I want to learn about it. So there was no courses available in Perth where I live. Um, there was no, no courses probably for about another eight months, but there was a course coming up in Adelaide. So I flew to Adelaide, did the courses, came home. I said to the trainers, look, I would love to be able to incorporate this therapy with people who have addictions. And they said, if you want to do that with drug addiction, you have to do more study. So I did more study um, to be able to incorporate all that. Um, learning about hypnotherapy and the, and the mind, that was massive for me. Um, even though, look, I, luckily for me, I've always been a very positive person ever since I was a kid. I'm very positive. I don't like negativity. I don't surround myself with negative people. Um, I've always had a very strong mindset and because of that, that was a huge part in getting me through jail in Thailand. I was very tough mentally and if I wasn't as tough mentally as I am, I don't think I would have come out of that situation as well as I did. Yeah, I mean, again, it, it's it's about having or finding or knowing an inner resolve and at the same time empowering yourself. It's not easy for, for a lot of folks, um, but it's it's good to know that if you can find those tools and you can somehow synergize and bring them together, you actually create such an impact, not just around you, but around yourself and your community. Now... Yeah. It, there's a there's a there's a sensitive part of your life and I, I don't want to pry and I don't want to sort of focus or get too deep but it is an instrumental aspect of your one can say drug-free living and your approach to things um the loss of your uh, brother and sister to overdose which you'd mentioned earlier that took place around the time when you were in uh, Thailand or was that afterwards and did that sort of how did that impact your sense of purpose and drive to come out of what you were in no my my brother overdosed and died about three years ago and my sister overdosed and died about a year and a half ago so not not that long ago um Nothing really changed for me after they died. I'd always felt this stronger drive in me. 
you know, it, that was just, that was just very sad, but I'd always had the want inside to help people. So yeah, that, that didn't really change. That was already there. Yeah. It was just, you know, it was just so sad that my brother and sister just continued on that crazy merry-go-round, you know, they weren't able to get off. And yeah, just such a shame and such a waste because they were both great people. They were just caught up in a vicious cycle, one that they couldn't get out of. And, you know, for me and my younger brother, we were the lucky ones. We made it out. So, you know, just sad. Sad that it had to happen. And and, and you touch upon this very eloquently in your book. And, and for our listeners, um, uh, Holly's book, I think, is one can see and find perspectives of ourselves, not to the perhaps to the extent of what Holly you've been through, but uh, everyone has their own personal demons. Everyone has been through um, a certain situation and unable to somehow articulate it. But I can say how valuable your story has been, particularly in that particular chapter and the 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 uh, the impact. Um, Let's now sort of move to your giving back. So you're looking at volunteer work. Talk to us about um, the special something, right? Which is the Homelessness We Care program and your motivation on homelessness. And I'd like to probably spend a bit of time on the homeless aspect because we've done some studies there as well. And it'll be interesting to sort of compare notes on what is it that you're setting out to do with homelessness? So when I was in jail in Thailand, I, I witnessed daily, actually, other prisoners who had no money and no support going through rubbish bins looking for food. Um, or these, these people coming over and if they saw we had food, can I have some or can I have some bread? Or That was heartbreaking to see. I'd never, ever seen anything like that in my life. Um, that was really hard to, to watch. Um, you know, obviously when we had food and people asked, of course you share, but sometimes we were asked, can I, can I have blah, blah, blah. We didn't even have any for us. So, you know, there were, there were times when I was hungry. I'd never experienced hunger in my whole life and never, ever did I imagine I ever would. So after having those experiences and seeing those things, I made a promise to myself then and there in that jail that when I got home, I was going to volunteer somewhere and, and give back because I know what that feels like. I have experienced that. Um, and I, I really know it can happen to anybody. It doesn't matter who you are, how rich you are, what, what where you live, none of that matters. And I know that. So that was important for me to, you know, hook up with this foundation. They're, they're great people. Um, they're great people doing great things for, for people that aren't as, as lucky. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the entire aspect of homelessness, I mean, you know, in, in Singapore, for instance, there's, there's willful homelessness. Simply folks would prefer 
you know, not being at home for whatever reason and, you know, choosing to be sort of on the outdoors, rough living and all that. Um, there's also other parts, obviously, in the world and in, in our in our part of the world where homelessness is, is, is it's, yeah, it's, it's scarily bad. Um, there's many mitigation of, I guess, strategies here. What is, what is, I guess, the one that you think seems to be working? Is it bringing, let's say, a certain amount of uh, safe environment? Is it putting them back into educational or vocational? Uh, what, what, what would that be? Just in a, just if you were to think on the top of your head when it comes to homelessness, where would be your focus, your wish that you think could really happen? Over here, I don't know about other states, but I know here there's not enough housing for people. That's a big thing. Um, and it, that's become more prevalent, I think, um, with COVID. I don't know about where you are, but over here, there was nowhere to rent. Um, there were people out on the streets because where they had been renting, the rent had been risen that much. They couldn't afford to pay that rent anymore. That was a real thing here. Um, yeah, so people that had never been struggling before are suddenly struggling and they can't pay their rent. That, that was huge and that happened to a lot of people here. Um, yeah, the, the COVID didn't help things very much at all. But now that everything's sort of died down a lot, um, there's not enough places for people to go, like refuges, that type of thing. There's not enough beds available. I think that has to be addressed like first. You know, these people, they need to go have somewhere to go to, not just for one night. One night's not going to change anything. They need to be able to go somewhere for a, sub a substantial amount of time so they can get their life in order. They can put strategies in place. You know, one or two nights, that's not helping. Yeah. In, in, in Toronto, where I was doing a brief study on this um, at, at various halfway houses, it was, some of the strategies were very sound. It's interesting that a lot of uh, solutions come from faith-based uh, groups, and you realize the role that faith plays in real tangible solutions. Um, for instance, uh, if someone's got to get a job, they can't go to job looking like they just got off the street. They need a place to shave, look better, wash up, um, you know, dress a little better, uh, get to work. So even how do you get yourself to work? You had to walk, what, 20 kilometers? Yeah. What are you going to do? So transportation, housing, uh, you know, and then, like you said, it takes about, there's a runway, right? About a couple of months, if not more, to just get a little bit up on your feet, start getting a bit of income in you know, let's say six months, five months, so that income comes in, then you start to get, let's say, you know, uh, you know, independent in that way. But right now, it's a, it's a stopgap measure, isn't it? I think that's what you're saying, that if it's only for a couple of days a week, you're not really able that's to- That's not life-changing. It's not life-changing. No, it's not. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, we're talking now, I guess, in the area of where- hope and reform are coming into play. So we're talking about reform. In your perspective, the reform which is now coming out of, uh, not just now, it's not just prison anymore. Now we're talking about homelessness, inequity, societal. Um, 
you're looking also in terms of how um, reform in prison systems and human rights as well. And that's, I think, uh, you know, an area that we could probably have uh, a few hours on. But, you know, um, are, are you are you progressing on that space? Are, are you working on any sort of interesting areas in prison systems or human rights or reform that, that you're maybe able to give us a bit what, of a... What I've just started doing now, um, so all the study I've done and the things I'm starting to put into place now, now that my book has been released, my... What I want to do with my life now is I want to help people and I want to go to places like high schools, rehab centres, prisons, like not, not just those places. I want to go everywhere and talk to anybody and everybody because what I've got to say, it's not just about addiction or depression or whatever. It's about, it's about everything. It's about being motivated. It's about having the right mindset to be able to be confident or do things. It's, it's about everything. So that's what, that's what I want my next chapter to be in life. I want to inspire people. I want to motivate people and let them know that anything's possible. You can do it. There's nothing you can't do. If, if you had a time machine, it's almost like if you could go back to your 19 or 18 year old self or 15 year old oh, self. I wish I could, believe me. <laughs> you know, so in a way, that's what you're endeavoring to do. Catch it at a time before it can actually result in a, in, in that in that downward spiral, right? So be where the problems already are, but almost be there where you could prevent that or just set a light bulb off, right? And a few folks to say, gosh, you know, I'm glad I didn't do, you know, something like that or, you know, and- oh, for sure, yeah. And, and, and it's- and, it's Sorry, the, the thing I've found as well is that when I was 20 year old, there wasn't as much, there weren't as many services available back then than there are now. I was very um, surprised to learn about two weeks ago what services are available to people now. And there's so many, but I don't think people know enough about it. I think that's a problem as well. People don't know what help's available, where it is, who to contact, what to do. Yeah, I think people need that education as well. Yeah, it's not always... No, like there are places that will help you. Yeah, and it doesn't matter. You, and when you're talking about spreading this word, I think we talked about this, is that, you you know, maybe Thailand is not a place that would necessarily welcome you in, but many places in Asia, Singapore, you know, we would, I think, having a uh, the ability to have this sort of a real dialogue and a real conversation is something that is always and, and, and very much supportive. I always ask yeah. this, um, I guess, this question, and I always sometimes stump them, or I sort of have them sort of readily have an answer. But if you were to summarize, let's say, in a couple of sentences, what your life has been and where you now see it going, and you've 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 said so much and you've been so much, but is there a word or a few words that describes Holly? Me now. 
what I feel now is that this is my new chapter of my life. I'm now going from everything that's happened to me, everywhere I've been. I'm now using all of that for my new chapter in my life for good things. And I know that what I've got to offer is good. And I know I can help a lot of people. I know that without a doubt, this is where I'm meant to be. This is what I'm meant to be doing. Like, honestly, I feel this is my calling. Everything that I've done in my life has been to this moment. That's how I feel. Sorry, that was a bit more than two sentences. Oh, well, I mean, I, I think it's it's the inspiration. And in a way that summarizes why it has been such a privilege, Holly, to, to get to know you and to have you as our flagship kickoff for this season, because it is so important that you reflect on the adversity, but the strength, as you just said it, this is the moment you were made. This is it. This is where you are meant to be. Telling people that at their most despondent or at their lowest, there's there's something you were here for. And that support to be able to find whatever challenges they, those might be, resilience, personal growth, commitment, um, is something that comes out very strongly. And it's the cornerstone for policy. It, it really is because it's only from personal stories of resilience, those that have succeeded, those who haven't, uh, to come out to say things matter, the individuals matter, and particularly around uh, recidivism, prison reform, and outcomes. I want to thank you so much, Holly. Um, this has been, I think, I, yeah, I can't tell you how excited and how much I've been looking forward to this. I want to tell my listeners that, you know, Holly's initiatives that you've heard, the link to her book will be provided down below. But right away, you can go visit www.hollydeanjohns.com.au and read up about Holly, connect with Holly. Uh, she's up on LinkedIn as well. And that's a great place to, to sort of discuss and, you know, uh, network. Uh, as I'm well everywhere. You're everywhere. <laughs> Um, uh, as Holly said, she is so open to uh, participation, to being a part of, let's say, uh, uh, outcomes and positivity. And I think there's a lot that we can we can all uh, benefit from that on. And I, and I want to just thank you again, Holly, for taking this time out uh, and in a way teaching us a, a side of life that very few could, could imagine. But thank you so yeah. much. Oh, you're welcome. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm, I'm really glad we were put in touch. It's been great. <laughs>